I'm Emma G. Rose. I'm Shell Shearer. We're indie authors. And this is Indie Book Talk. Hello and welcome back to Indie Book Talk. Today, we have the hottest new author in the MFA thesis circle, uh, (laughs) Ian M. Rogers. (laughs) That's a joke because I'm sure he's very famous, but his his title of his novel is actually MFA thesis novel. And it came out from Vine Leaves Press just recently, so you can go buy it when you're done listening to this podcast. But we're going to talk to Ian about what he's up to and why he wrote a novel about MFA thesis things. Yes. Yeah. So hi, Ian. Welcome to the show. Yeah. Hi. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you very much for having me for that very flattering introduction as well. I love it when people get creative with the novel titles. So again, this is just an just an incredible pleasure. Thank you. So your novel title. Very much on the nose there. Is this actually a thesis you wrote during your MFA? No, uh, no, it is not, actually. I I started writing this about four or five months after I had finished. So this novel was never workshop as part of my grad school experience. So this was written uh, entirely after. Okay. And what is it over? Is it like discussing the, the process of the MFA or your thoughts on it? It is. So the the gist of the novel, so it's about a 20-something character who wants to be a writer, but he's not really sure how to do that. He's trying to make trying to make that happen. And so he enrolls in a large uh, MFA program in a large Midwestern university, goes out there, and it doesn't go very well. The other characters, the other grad students, professors don't really like his novel. You know, they're giving him all this kind of absurd advice on how to fix it. And he's facing this avalanche of academic pressure. And it's about him trying to figure out what kind of writer he wants to be, what kind of artist he wants to be in a world that maybe isn't always conducive to create creativity and art. So that brings up a question. I've heard that before in people taking writing classes in universities and for a thesis that they really quelch the creativity on a lot of areas. Did you have that issue during yours? Not directly. I think quelch is a very, very strong word. But I think that when it came down to the nitty gritty of workshops uh, when I was in grad school, there was some advice that was very often geared towards fixing a problem in a very mainstream kind of way. Or for example, if I was trying to do something very non-traditional or experimental or um, something that was very different, for lack of a better term, um, sometimes instead of figuring out ways to fix it or do it better or do it more innovatively, the advice would kind of be to either get rid of that thing or to simplify it or maybe do it in a more traditional way. And sometimes this was just because the experience of the other writers, but sometimes I think there was a fear that, oh, if you do it that way, agents won't want to publish you. You Nobody's going to want to sign with you. You're not going to be able to get picked up by a mainstream press or mainstream press so I think there was some pressure to conform to this ideal, realistic or not, this imaginary ideal of what the quote-unquote market wanted within that environment. How much of this novel, give us a percentage, how much do you feel was at least indirectly autobiographical and how much of it was made up? I I always tell people that the events of the novel are all fictitious. I mean, we, we, it's got that disclaimer on the front title page, you know, the characters in this novel are fictitious and so on. Um, so while the events are very fictitious, the sort of emotional aspect or the feelings about creativity or the environment were very much based on that experience. So that feeling of being pressured, of not being sure how to make your way in the world as a writer, 
of feeling like you had to sort of answer or live up to these expectations around you. That kind of uncertainty, that stress was something that I felt uh, very acutely when I was in grad school. And it was only later, sort of when I finished and was outside and sort of processing a lot of that, that I was able to work through a lot of those feelings and turn them into a piece of fiction. Hmm. So is there a thesis at the end of an MFA? <laughs> uh, very good question. Depends on your MFA. So for mine, very, very quick, quick tangent, but I actually have a master's in creative writing, technically not an MFA. I went to University of Nebraska. A lot of creative writing programs sort of switched from MA to MFA, you know, and over the past 40 years, again, it's just because that's kind of the mainstream. But again, so my, my degree is technically a master's of creative writing. Also, I don't think anyone would want to buy a book entitled MA thesis novel, the MFA kind of makes more sense. <laughs> In, in, in that respect. So, you know, I always, you know, I always have to explain that caveat, but I'm very sorry. What was your original question? <laughs> Did you actually have a thesis that you had to write? Oh, yeah, yeah, I actually have a thesis. Again, every program uh, functions differently. I actually did not have to. My program had, I believe it was two different options. One was to produce a thesis. I did, I ended up doing novel mine, or you could not do a thesis, and I believe it was take an exam or have some other requirement uh, that I think involved taking more classes. I think every creative writing program stru is structured a little bit differently. I think it's in the best interest of students to work on some bigger work, simply because I think it's really easy to get, as an emerging writer, to get overly focused on producing only shorter works that are very isolated from one another. I think it's really good writing practice to, as a novelist, practice writing a novel to uh, work with those sort of bigger story threads as a graduate student. Or um, if you're into short stories, it's better to sort of work on compiling those short stories into a bigger collection. Same if you're a poet as well. I think not only will this sort of give you a manuscript at the end that you can sort of pitch out, I think it's good, just good practice for you as a writer to work on assembling your own work in this way. And I think the thesis, even though it's an academic requirement, can be a really good way to uh, get that practice in. So what happened to your thesis? Very good question. So the novel that I was working on uh, when I was in grad school was actually a novel about Japan. I've lived in Japan for several years. I was an English teacher there, including for two years before I started the master's. And so when I had applied, I was working on this novel, this very big, sprawling, epic novel about life in Japan. And there was a lot of experimentation. And I was doing, there's a lot of Japanese in the novel, a lot of aspects of Japanese culture in the novel. You know, I was really into modernism. So, you know, I was copying things from James Joyce and William Faulkner and things like that. And I was, I was working with this project that, again, uh, often didn't go well in workshops when people didn't understand what I was doing, or maybe I was trying things that were too ambitious. But I worked on that novel, polished up that novel, um, submitted it as my thesis, and was very proud of how it came out. I pitched it to uh, first agents and then small presses for a long time. I think the novel in the end was a little bit too niche and maybe a bit too specialized for an American audience. I think it was more focused on the Japanese experience in a way that was maybe a little bit too esoteric. So I eventually very much, you know, simplified the story, uh, shortened it down, published it as a chapbook with a small press a few years ago, which I was very happy with how that version came out and that launch was very good. But the experience taught me a lot about, again, working on a bigger project and uh, just the challenges that come with that, which really prepared me to write this novel again after I'd already finished grad school. 
What was the title of that novel? That novel is called Nails, actually. It's based on an old Japanese proverb. The nail that sticks out must be pounded down. It was a novel about conformity and fitting into a very uh, homogenous Japanese environment for the foreigner characters who, again, maybe wanted to do things their own way. The mm-hmm. chapbook version was called Ekaiwa Bums. Ekaiwa is a name for a Japanese conversation school. And Bums, of course, is bums. So it's the idea that, you know, these foreigner characters are living in Japan, maybe don't understand the culture very well, maybe moving from job to job, trying to figure out a niche for themselves in some way. Um, It's a pretty interesting subculture, um, the expat subculture in Japan, because again, there's people who are in and out and there's people who are there for a long time. Sometimes the groups interact in interesting ways. I think Foreigners in Japan interact with Japanese people in interesting ways anyway, um, just because Japan is such a specific, nuanced culture with very defined values and ways of behaving. So it can be very different, uh, difficult for foreigners to enter that and to attempt to uh, live within that society. And so that source of conflict was something that I was very interested in exploring um, with my writing about Japan. But in the end, I think it was something that you know, in the end, too few readers could relate to, because again, that audience of Japanese expats is very, very small. Hmm. So you mentioned chat books twice. What is a chat book? Oh, uh, yeah. So a chat book is a small, short book. You know, they run the gamut from, you know, more zine type things that are, you know, made on a computer to a hundred page book that is professionally bound and just uh, is just very, very short. My particular uh, chapbook was part of a series called Overtime by Blue Cubicle Press. It's a series about work. Publisher releases several every year, and they run the gamut of all type, types of stories about work. And this story that I was trying to tell about Japan was also about work. It was about work at the conversation school and the weird standards that exist there and trying to conform to the Japanese work environment there. So I did find luck uh, pitching this sort of simplified version to Blue Cubicle who, again, does all kinds of uh, fiction about work. And um, it fit very well within this um, this shorter, shorter overtime series that they had. Cool. So are you going to continue with your current publisher on, on your next book? Or is there going to be a next book? Yes, I'm, I'm working on another book right now. It's still in the rough draft stage, so I'm not talking about it too, too much. Okay. Vine Leaves has been a great publisher. The graphic designer is very good. There's a very supportive environment there. They were able to provide a lot of marketing help um, oh, nice. and just really good guidance about how to get set up as an indie author, which for me was really helpful because part of the reason that I was interested in a small press versus self-publishing is because, you know, I had never published a book before. You know, I wasn't sure how to handle things like finding a cover artist or, you know, making sure the layout was professional and so on. And for me, I felt much more comfortable working with working with a press who had experience with those things, but also sort of finding a network within that press. You know, the Vine Leaves authors have been great. You know, I've been able to network with a lot of them, do projects with them. Um, some of some of the other Vine Leaves authors and I did a panel for the Small Small Press Festival a few months ago. I was really happy with that how that came out. So again, it's been a nice way of meeting people, networking, um, which I think small presses do very well in a lot of ways. 
And then also, if you ever want to work in academia and are looking to sort of use your novel or use your writing on your CV as sort of a writing credential, I think being on a small press um, within academia um, is pretty highly recognized. So it's, it's able to sort of uh, get you a foot in the door if you're ever looking to work in academia. Okay. I think we've lost Emma. I'm just, I'm sorry. I'm fascinated by the chat book about Japan. Because I, I also lived in Japan for a couple oh, of years. Oh, no kidding. And so I was trying. Where did you live? Yeah, I was in Yakuska. Oh, wow, wow, wow. Okay, the military base. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, I was on the military base uh, with the Red Cross. Oh, wow. Uh, volunteering with the Red Cross there. Mm-hmm. And so it was like very different experience, I think, probably to the experience you had. Because we had this sort of. I mean, we had a base, so we were like isolated in a different way, I think, than the people who were totally immersed in the culture the way that I believe a lot of the English teachers are. So I was like trying to find the chat book online and stuff, and I (laughs) I don't know where to find it. So you should probably send me a link to it or something where I can get it. Uh, But anyway, (laughs) here's a question for you. Now that I've talked about me, you share a name with a very famous author who's been working for quite a while. Ian Rogers was a Canadian writer of dark fiction, right? Do you have any issues with that when it comes to things like branding and letting people know who you actually are? That's a, um, that's a really good question. So I have only been referring to myself as Ian M. Rogers for about a year and a half, two years now. It was a decision I made after I had signed the novel, but before MFA thesis novel came out. And again, this was over sort of a long, slow process of figuring out what my brand was and and how to make that work. And I'd known about the other Ian Rogers, the Canadian writer, for kind of a long time. It was kind of a joke. You know, I once posted on social media like, hey, everybody, here's my new website and then uh, linked to his website. And some people (laughs) fell for it as an April Fool's joke, you know, and um, (laughs) So he had been on my radar for a long, long time. But I think a certain naive part of me just believed like, oh, okay, he can be Ian Rogers writing his fiction, and then I will be Ian Rogers writing my fiction. And then sort of as I got deeper into branding research and marketing real research, I realized, well, wait a minute, you know, if people go to look up Ian Rogers's book, they're not going to find my book that just came out two months ago, they're going to find his work that has been out for years and years and years, and he's very established on the internet. And so, you know, in, in the process of thinking about this, I thought, okay, so how can I, um, how can I make myself unique in some way? And this is a, this is a problem that, you know, some, some authors have, if your name is common, if, if, an, if it's shared with another writer, or even just another person who isn't a writer, you know, if you, um, if you Google Ian Rogers, it's not even the Canadian Ian Rogers writer that comes up. It's Ian Rogers, the business executive who used to work for Apple Music. And I believe he's, he works for Ledger, the Bitcoin wallet company now. And so that, so that runs into problem with Google. So anyway, so you have to figure out what to do. Some writers, you know, they will use a pen name for this reason, you know, do that. In literary fiction, again, that wasn't something that I was interested in. Another common path is to use your middle name in some mm-hmm. way, you know, it's or, or do um, or do the first two initials. In the research I had done, um, some of it specifically recommended not using your middle initial for the reason that a lot of people will just leave it out. You know, they won't think it's important in some way when writing your name. And this has happened to me on occasion. 
again, I'm, it, when it does happen, I'm usually able to politely correct the person or, you know, say like, oh, by the way, you know, could you call me Ian M. Rogers? You know? And everybody's always very understanding about that. But for me, I think it's, my middle name is Michael. I never liked my middle name, you know, kind of as a kid. So whenever they ask you to put your middle name on forms, I would always just put my middle initial. So when I was in high school, the um, the class rosters would come up. And for whatever reason, the teachers had class rosters with everybody's middle name on it. And so you'd have everybody's middle name except for me, where I was always E and M. So again, it was, it was a very natural name for me to adopt. And I think in a lot of ways, when I was thinking about my writing career, writing brand, where I wanted it to go, I wouldn't feel comfortable having a book with a name on the cover that didn't feel like my name. You know, that was, you know, Mm -hmm. I am Rogers or I Michael Rogers or a pen name or or something like that. Although I am Rogers would be hilarious. (laughs) You know, I, um, (laughs) said said that, yeah, I am Rogers, you know, and probably, you know, partly there's, there's that, but I, I wanted something that would feel natural for me. And I think every writer should make that decision as well. If they're, um, if they have this problem, you, you should use the name that feels most comfortable for you, because at the end of the day, I think that matters tremendously, you know, no matter how many people are going to leave out your middle initial. It's a hard decision, you know, pen name, not pen name, what, how to do your name. Will it affect your work life? Legally changing your name to your opinion. I mean, there's just, I, I struggled over it for months. I'm like, I just don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's, I think the pen name is, issue is a particularly um, perplexing one for writers who are maybe want to keep their writing a secret from their day job life or from their other work life. For example, I, of course, it's very common for romance novels and novelists True. to have pen mm-hmm. names, you know. And I've talked to other writers who, you know, I write, I publish. But I would never want anybody at my job figuring out that I did that. And for them, the pen name can be a tremendous source of safety. And that's something that feels very comfortable for them. And again, I think that every writer should should portray their work in a way that feels very natural for them. And for me, I feel most natural doing it in a way with a name that feels like my own. I'm thinking like Tony Stark versus... Superman, like Superman wants to be Superman, but Tony Stark was like, hey guys, by the way, I'm Iron Man, deal with it. Anyway. That's not relevant. It is, it is, because again, Tony Stark is choosing to to use that Tony Stark name, and then fans would choose to refer to him as Tony Stark as well. So it fits a little bit differently than Iron Man. I mean, same with Bruce Wayne, Batman. You know, it's like you know, Bruce Wayne is the act. You know, it's the the sort of fake rich playboy aspect. But then you know, Batman is you know his his core, and you can and you can use Batman as his sort of real name in that respect. Oh man, we got deep. I know, I'm like, hmm. <laughs> as, deep as, hmm. as deep as you can get with uh, comic book character names, I suppose. But. You can go deep. But, com- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> These are the conversations you have in a dorm room late at night, you know, like the relative merits of naming of. Yeah, we need pizza person. during this talk. <laughs> right? Why don't we have pizza? No. Recording with pizza <laughs> okay. seems like a dangerous combination, but. <laughs> yeah. It- there was this commercial for a while that was like a macaroni and cheese commercial where they were eating during the commercial and like talking while eating. And I paid for Spotify so that I no longer had to listen to that commercial. <laughs> so yeah, no, we're not going to, we're not going to do be any no chewing. talking while eating. There'll be no chewing on this podcast. I promise you listeners, it will never happen. However, now that I've gotten us completely and totally off track, 
let's bring it back for a second and tell us if people want to keep track of your upcoming projects, this secret novel that you're not really talking about yet, <laughs> when they do, do want to get those announcements, where can they find you on the internet? The best way is my website. So that's Ian M. Rogers author.com. So again, uh, Ian M. Rogers author.com. Or you can follow me on Instagram. I'm Ian the Raj. That's Ian the R-O-G-E at Twitter. Nice. Ian the Raj. Yeah. See, that almost sounds like a superhero. <laughs> yes. That was a um, that was that was another uh, sort of rebranding rebranding attempt I was playing with. You know, using using the Raj for things like uh, social media handles. <laughs> I like it. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I feel like I learned a lot about names that I wasn't expecting to learn. <laughs> so that was fun. And thank you, thank you for having me. It's been great.